Production. Recorded live. That's Mike again. Nothing but the truth. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Let's see what this, these folks have to say. Jim Wade. Students of God's word should be intrigued when confronted with seeming contradictions in the scriptures. Why? Because we are. We know God's revelation convey a consistent message. Conflicts. And our understanding only highlight areas where we need to study and grow. When, ide- when ideas appear to clash, our interpretation of at least one of the passages is incorrect. The challenge of resolving the conflict should spur us to study and not seek comfort in the thought that others accept the traditional view with its own set of conflicts. Indeed, it is the discomfort of such conflicts which compels diligent students to dig deeper rather than retreat. That said, the seeming contradiction posed in this issue is not as we shall see a contradiction at all. Jesus didn't pull any punches when he commissioned the 12 disciples, as recorded in Matthew chapter 10. He made it clear that many would not only reject their message, but persecute them as well. It is in this context that the relief promised at his coming appears. The disciples were all right. Where did I just go? The disciples were uh, to understand that although they evangelized all the cities of Israel, no, it, the disciples understood that although things would be difficult, their relief would come before they evangelized to all the cities of Israel. This statement is irrefutable evidence that the disciples would still be involved in their mission when he he came. Paul was equally clear in his letter, the gospel has been preached in all the world during his lifetime, whether one takes, quote, the world, and the quote, to be the old covenant world or the Roman Empire, the fact remains that the gospel had been preached to all the, to the nations. We will come back to this point shortly, suggesting that these two thoughts are contradictions. Uh, is based on an unwarranted and erroneous assumption, namely that the twelve were solely responsible for preaching the gospel in the all the world. No one who believes Christians still have a part in fulfilling the 12 original commission, uh, can logically insist that disciples alone were responsible for it in the first century. Even a casual reading of biblical text reveals that others were involved in fulfilling the mission. Hence, the plan... The plain text of Scripture tells us 
the twelve were not themselves responsible for completing the worldwide mission. Rather, the commission was fulfilled as the good news spread from person to person. Furthermore, a brief reflection on the events of Pentecost, Pentecost will serve as evidence that the propagation of the gospel to all nations began that very day. It could even be said that the gospel was preached to all the world that day, even if the audience was limited in scope. We read in Acts 2.5, and there were dwelling and Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. The text is clear. Men from every nation were present to hear the first presentation of the gospel message. And some commentators tell us that wealthy Jews here Wealthy Jews here. Some commentators tell us that the wealthy Jews here. World in now. I know that last sentence is just going to cut, cut, cut off. Eh, sorry. Some having place date and the event of I don't know if that's. Did I lose it? I certainly did. Oh, well. We'll see what else we got here. See. Maybe it has something there. Does not. Boom. Bell, page 14. Ah, I lost it. Lost my mojo. Oh, well. Homes. Uh, used here in a broader sense to include the dispersia, the disperse, uh, dispersa, bruh. 
maintained homes in Jerusalem with for the express purpose of having a place to stay when they came to keep the feast. They were among those assembled in the Pentecost who were pricked in their hearts. Acts 2.37 They were among the dis- distraught who learned that they had crucified their deliverer. They experienced the grace or forgiveness which answered the question of every heart. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Are we to think that these men returned to their homes and remained silent about what they heard and experienced? Anyone who had been brought to Christ, especially as an adult, or who has witnessed such a conversion can relate to the pure joy and excitement that overflows at every opportunity. Surely, those who received Peter's message carried it with them to their family and friends throughout the Roman Empire. The bottom line is that the twelve had helped they did not have to, they, they had help, excuse me. Uh, they did not have to go through all the cities of Israel personally for the message to be heard. Beyond that, Jesus' commissioned does not demand that every individual in every city had to be taught before the end would come. The commission of Christ properly understood never required that every individual was to hear the gospel before the end came. There never has been and never will be a time when every living individual has heard the gospel message. The children, uh, children, uh, children are born every minute and they will not be able to effectually hear the message for years to come. And to anticipate such a day is without biblical or logical foundation. Paul was not only trained in the scriptures, he was personally taught by our Lord through special revelation to say he, quote, knew his stuff, end quote, would be an Understatement. Yet we find no evidence that he thought the completion of the world mission contradicted the Master's words in Matthew. If he noted no conflict, we are hardly in a position to disagree. In conclusion, it is expected that those who reject the scriptures will always see contradictions in the text. And no explanation will ever satisfy them. However, those who honor the text should be willing to set aside futile assumptions and let Scripture speak for itself. When we attempt to force the divine text to conform to our human understanding, we end up confusing or deceiving ourselves and providing additional fodder for those who point to our faith as failures. We have been entrusted with the glorious message. May we be diligent students and faithful witnesses of the glory revealed to us in Christ.
recommended reading into all the world, then comes the end by Don Preston. And we'll go back up to here. Uh, this is Mr. Bell, William Bell. The question is asked, why if the coming of the Son of Man happened in 70 AD, do the scriptures say that the apostles would not have completed preaching to the cities uh, to the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes? Let's begin our response by examining the context of Christ's commission to the apostles. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of our Father who speaks in you. Now, brethren, we'll deliver up brother to death. So it says, now brother will deliver up brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all of, for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in the city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The largest context, in the larger context, Matthew 10, 1 through 4, describes a call of the apostles, followed by the commission of the twelve to go to preach. Beginning in verse 16, the instructions shift to the subject of persecution. The disciples would face severe uh, trials preaching the gospel, which would, quote, turn the world upside down, end quote. Observe that Jesus sent them out as harmless sheep in the midst of devouring wolves. While there is a concern for the safety of the apostles, Christ makes no effort to conceal the persecution they will face. Legal difficulties and trials before the Sanhedrin Council and before the governor, governors and kings are all detailed vividly in the Acts of the Apostles. The trials would involve betrayal by close family relations, brothers, over here. Uh, until the consummation of the Jewish age. Matthew 29, 20, and First Corinthians 1, 7 and 8. No one today can fulfill the commission as they would not be equipped with the powers of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out 
for the last days of Israel, Joel 2, 28 through 32, Acts 2, 16 through 20. Matthew 10, 23 is therefore a text which teaches an imminent coming. The lifetime of the apostles, the persecution, and the ministry of the Spirit within the last days of Israel support that, this conclusion. The fact that the Son of Man would come before the apostles exhaust all the cities of Israel demonstrates that soon to come, uh, Perusia, Perusia was the same coming taught elsewhere in the New Testament. It came to pass at the end of the Jewish age and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when all things written were fulfilled in Luke 21, uh, 20 through 32. Therefore, the text does not demand that preaching must continue in Israel today until Christ returns. The apostles fulfilled this mission in the first century by carrying the gospel to all, even to the midst of severe opposition. A message and the meeting, Matthew ten twenty three. While attending a theological school some years ago, one of the very first verses that attracted my attention to the preterist paradigm was Matthew ten twenty three. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. What an incredible statement. Could the second coming of Jesus have actually been so close at hand? Other statements in the New Testament affirm what is called, quote, the nearness of expectation, in quotes, as it relates to that generation and not to those who would live thousands of years in the future. Matthew 23, 36, 24, 34, Mark 6, 12, Mark 38, 9 and 30, uh, no, excuse me, uh, I mean Mark 8, 12 and 38, 9, Mark 9, 19, Mark 13, 30, Luke 7, 31, etc., History also records a marvelous fulfillment of, quote, all things written, end quote, as having been consummated with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Luke 21-22. Regarding the, quote, great commission, end quote, given by the Lord Jesus to his disciples following his resurrection from the dead, the scope and magnitude of the outreach would be, quote, all the world, end quote. Mark 16:15 and all the nations in the quote Mark 28:19 even to the the extent of all creation in quotes Mark 16:15 um, the NASB or quote every creature in the quote 
KJV. Other references in the New Testament point to the grand fulfillment of the commission over an approximately 40-year period during which time the message had been proclaimed, quote, in all creation under heaven, end of quote, Colossians 1.23, and, quote, made known to all the nations, end of quote, Romans uh, 16.28, or 26, excuse me. If these statements are true, then how could Jesus have said that his, quote, coming, end of quote, would take place before his disciples could, quote, finish going through the cities of Israel, end of quote? A seeming contradiction. Students of the word should keep in mind the contextual circumstances from which the statement arises. Matthew 10 Verses 1 through 42 depicts Jesus sending out his disciples on a mission limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In quotes in this verse 6. And after which they would return and report the results of their preaching efforts. Luke 9.10. Scholars are in... agreement that not all of what Jesus had foretold took place within the short span of time before they returned with their report. During this this journey, the disciples did not encounter the governors and kings, in quotes, nor were they beaten in the synagogues, in quotes, events that would unfold following the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Acts 16:22 and verse 37, 2 Corinthians 11:23-25. Although Jesus' prophetic statement reached into the future, it was restricted to the limitations of the nearness of expectation in quotes of the, that generation. The statement of Jesus was a call to urgency, a message that time was soon running out, and the kingdom of heaven was quote, at hand. In the quote, Matthew ten seven and Matthew sixteen twenty eight. Before the disciples would have the opportunity to quote go through the cities of Israel, in the quote, the end would occur. It must be understood that the preaching to quote all the creation, in the quote, or quote all the nations, in quote, does not necessarily imply that the disciples were compelled to personally travel to every single city in the, quote, world for the work to be accomplished. The Bible reveals that following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, thousands responded to the message of salvation. Acts 2.47, Acts 5.14, Acts 11.24, and Acts 13.48, etc., even though the apostles themselves would not have had time to travel, quote, into all the world, and to quote, during this short span of 40 years, the multiplying principle of preaching, teaching, and ministry would propel the message far and wide. There is no contradiction between Jesus' statements in Matthew 10:23 and those later record. Or letter record 
<clears throat> later recorded by the Apostle Paul as an inspired commentary and testimony of how the fulfillment of those words took place, both Jew and Gentile were brought together into the, quote, one body, end of quote, as predicted in Joel 2, 28-32, and Acts 2, 17-21. The amazing dis uh, dissemination of the gospel took place just as it had been predicted, and the end came right on time. Quote, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In Matthew twenty-four fourteen. And I know this is a disturbing message to hear from me, or anybody else for that matter, because this is something that we've been told that Jesuits actually, this is their, uh, a Jesuit Alcazar supposedly gave us preterism. And the term itself, and it's very technical and sounding in itself, and it makes people very frightened to look into it as it did to me. Uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon, Earth. Let's see what this is. It is um, a, 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 a peak to me, whatever that's. Very fruitful source of confusion and error in interpretation of the New Testament is the um, capricious uh, and uncertain way in which ye e is rendered in our authorized version. Sometimes, though rarely, it has the proper meaning, the land, but more frequently it is translated the earth, and our translators never seem to have given themselves any trouble in, to inquire whether the word should be taken in its widest or in its more restricted sense. Strong's Dictionary, New Testament, uh, 193. G, or, G, G, H, A, Y, Fay, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The, Fay, uh, contradict, contracted from the primary word, soil, by extension, a region, or the soil part, or whole of the terrain globe, or who should be plain, we're going to live on a globe, including the occupants in each application. KJV, country, earth, ground, land, world. Thayer Greek lexicon, Earth. Heritable land, Matthew 13, um, 5, 8, and 23. The ground, the earth as a standing place, Matthew 10, 29. The main land opposed to sea or water. Mark, for one, the earth as a whole, the world. One, the earth as opposed to the heavens, Mark, excuse me, Matthew 5, 18, 35, B, 
be inhabited earth, the abode of man and animal. Luke 21, 35. And then it goes five here. A country, land enclosed within fixed borders, a track of land, territory, region. Luke 4, 25. I don't even know if they have it. They still do this stuff or not. But I knew one thing. Um, yeah, we've been suckered. Instead of fighting the good fight, we've been suckered. We've been bought into the thing that we're waiting for something to come that already came. <laughs> oh. And this whole thing about the Jesuits, well, the Jesuits do a masterful job of, of not using the Bible correctly at all. So you really can't even give them the credit for it. Oh, you could, because of this preterist thing and how it contradicts so strongly with the main body of Christendom believes in. But yes, it's the truth, because it comes right out of the Word of God, that, um, and with history backing it up, that Christ came around 70 AD. And then if we look at this time period of what we're dealing with here, and this adding on of at least 300 years, uh, at least, and I'm telling that it's 2016, but no, it's not 2016. At the best, it's 1716. Which shows... <laughs> uh, Maybe they, and they knew that. Maybe that's what they knew. That seventeen seventy six is the goal. The, the true date of where they they hope to be a, completely accomplish the uh, their new world order. Their um, that would give them sixty years to get to that point, which would be another two generations and they work in their long-term goal of dominance of the whole world other than it wouldn't be such a bad idea anyways it is a speculation at best on my part and is not at all doctrinal as far as <clears throat> It never quite caught on, did it? I think it's such uh, truth really does isolate you. You discover what you really love, who you really, what do you really love? What's more important? And um, how much does the truth really matter to you? I don't know. But um,
Science demands a rapture. Ed Stevens. End times rapture related Bible study material. I would love to get that book behind the veil of Moses. That'd be great. <clears throat> I don't have all the answers. There's certainly some things that still need to be rustled here and dealed out. I mean, the afterlife, more before life, some things. But uh, the last days, according to Jesus. Sproul. He's a partial preterist. He's still holding on to there's something in the future. You know, and there could be. But I'm not putting my money on it. And when I start seeing all the signs of the second coming, I'm going to run the other direction. My God, my Lord, that's already triumph. And I know it's confusing and it doesn't make any sense. How could it possibly be? with all the misery that's going on around here, but his kingdom is not of this earth. And so, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. But I know one thing, there's the, the immediacy of the wording in the New Testament is hard to over, to just gloss over and pretend it's something else. Silence demands a rapture. Huh? What are we suggesting here? Anyways, let's get back to reading this history thing. But I find this fascinating. It's almost like Well, it's certainly it's 2016, which is more like 1760, or less. I know this is very uh, radical stuff. And I don't mean to be radical at all. I'm not trying to be radical. I just want to know the truth. To the best of my ability that I can acquire or obtain it, it seems self-evident that uh, I'm not going to find it in the usual places. You know, the usual places are actually fellow Americans that are uh, playing a mind game with me. And you know what? My experience is there's no flaw. People are willing to do just about anything for a buck. Mm. 
I was too. So, evidence from the East. Up until the 1960s and 70s, historians tended to believe that the Byzantinian, that Byzantinian had somehow escaped the general disintegration that occurred in the rest of Europe from the 7th century onward to about the 10th century, right? About 300-year gap of nothing, which is leads us to the profound conclusion that somebody added 300 years on for a reason. The Eastern Empire, after all, did not fall to the barbarians. No Gothic or Vandal army ever breached the walls of Constantinople. The European provinces of the empire were indeed periodically overrun by barbarian hosts, but these territories were invariably recovered, and in any case, they did not form the economic and cultural core of the empire. The eastern provinces, however, const- constituting Anatolia, Assyria, Egypt, were by far the most important and populated provinces. Now, you know, one of the reasons why they want Syria, I'll tell you, is about a pipeline. They want to recreate the Roman Empire. It's not my place to stop them or say yay or no or anyway. And I'm, you know, you can't do anything about it anyways. But it's, yeah, it's what they want. <laughs> We're um, by far the most important populated province. It's almost like they want to bring us back into time to the time of Jesus trying to, to redo it all over again. These areas were never touched by barbarians. The Arab and the uh, Persian assaults in the 7th century, it was con- coincided... Let me try this again. My mind got lost there, my comment. The Arab and the Persian assaults of the, in the 7th century, it was conceded, may have deprived the empire of her most important regions, but Constantinople held on to Western Asian Minor and then recovered her European territories and the Balkans. And all through this time, she remained a beacon of civilization and culture. Even Perini assumed that the Eastern Empire had survived the Arab onslaught more or less unscathed, and indeed, the supposed survival of classical culture in Byzantium, Byzantium was viewed as a telling argument against him. If the Arabs had destroyed Greco-Roman civilization in the Western Europe, why did they fail to do so in the East? The Byzantium would, Byzantium would presumably have been subject to the same economic blockade as Italy and Gaul. Why then no disintegration there? Such considerations threw many back to the traditional belief that it was indeed the Germanic invaders of Western Europe rather than the Arabs who had terminated classical culture there. The idea that Byzantium, 
Byzantium not only escaped the Dark Age, in quotes, but actually flourished during it was widespread even in, unto the 1950s. Thus, in 1953, Sydney Painter was able to describe the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries at Byzantium as, quote, three centuries of glory. <laughs> Very marked and remarked that during this time, the Byzantium Empire was the richest state in, in Europe, the strongest military power, and by far the most cultivated, in quotes. We are further informed that, quote, during these three centuries, while Western Europe was a land of partly tamed barbarians, the Byzantium Empire was a highly civilized state, were a most felicitous merger of Christianity and Hellenism produced a fascinating culture. And it says, a picture here, St. Dimitrio uh, Thessalonica began and 629 A.D., one of the largest surviving 7th century Byzantine churches. Oh, cool looking, actually. The above opinion com common till the middle of the 20th century was, the course partly prompted, was of course partly prompted by Byzantine propaganda our Byzantine propaganda, which always sought to portray Constantinople as the, quote, New Rome, end of quote, and the successor in the unbroken line of authority of the first Christian emperor, Constantine. But it was also the result of habitual seeing, quote, barbarism, in quotes, solely as the innovation of nomadic tribes of Germany and uh, Scythia. Scythia. Since Constantinople had never had over, been overrun by these barbarians, it could not have lost its civilized character. The failure of academics to move away from the this almost Reflex reaction is testimony to the failure of Perini's thesis to make any real inroads into the mindset of mo so many of the scholarly community. Yet, irrespective of the somewhat cliched thinking pre prevalent in academy or academia, uh, discoveries in the ground discoveries in the ground have not stopped happening, and these have forced, albeit begrudgingly, begrudgingly, a complete rethink of Byzantinium's early medieval past. As a matter of fact, archaeology over the past half a century has shown beyond question that the once proud Eastern Rome was devastated during the 7th century. The same poverty and illiteracy that we find 
in the West, we now find also in the East. Cities decline or disappear completely. This is a possibility. And economies of empire, or what remained of it, is left in tatters. Indeed, just as in the West, the, quote, dark ages descends. The disclosure by archaeology that this utterly unexpected circumstance created a major problem for mainstream academia, in part from the fact that we now know a, quote, dark age, and a, quote, had occurred in the East, just as in the West, it seemed an incredible co coincidence that this should have occurred in both regions at more or less exactly the same time, only a few decades earlier, and the writings of Dutch and Perini had uh, compiled or compelled historians to abandon their old and traditional view of the Dark Age descending on the West in the 5th century with the arrival of the barbarians. They had found it difficult, if not impossible, to picture Germanic kings reigning as Christian and Roman monarchs for two centuries, and in order to explain the Dark Age, that eventually did appear without putting the blame on the Arabs, they had to postulate a gradual decline of Western provinces under the incapable and uncouth leadership of the Germans. What they did not expect was a similar decline in the Eastern provinces, territories not governed by Germans, but by descendants of some of the most venerable ancient families of Rome and Greece. How to explain this without conceding the argument in its entirety, Perini, the discovery of Byzantinian Dark Age, in fact, produced what can only be described as a remarkable vault face on the part of the academic community. What was previously regarded as flourishing and opulent was now seen as, from the end of the 6th century, decadent and indeed terminally ill. It could not be argued that the East suffered a gradual decline for the archaeology proved beyond question the existence of a flourishing and wealthy Byzantine world well into the middle and even the late 6th century. In the words of one prominent authority, quote, archaeological evidence offers striking confirmation of the wealth of the church and society at large from the 4th to the 6th century. All, all around the Mediterranean, Basilicas have been found by the score. While archaeologically standardized, these were quite large buildings, often of often a hundred feet or more in length, and were lavishly decorated with imported marble columns, <coughs> carvings, and monastic mosaic. In every town, more and more churches were built. Da, da, da. 
in the quote. But this church building, and indeed palace building, did come to a complete halt when, before the middle of the 7th century, how could this be explained without pointing to the Arabs? The answer seized upon was a rapid decline from the end of the 6th century onward. The writer quoted above continues, quote, dot, 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 more and more the church, churches were built until about the middle of the 6th century when this activity slackened and then ceased entirely, end of quote. But the truth, as we shall see, is... There was very little slacking, slackening of building activity after the mid-6th century. New and sometimes magnificent structures continued to be raised throughout the Byzantinian lands until the first quarter of the 7th century, after which it did cease entirely. But it did not, as the above writer seeks to imply, cease gradually. It came to an end suddenly and violently. The sheer wealth and luxury of Byzantine civilization during the 6th and early 7th century, long hinted at the written sources, has now been fully confirmed by excavation. I leave it to another chapter to examine this topic in detail. Suffice to note here that the opulence, the opulence of the late classical cities has astonished the excavators. Let's look, for example, at the city of Ephesus. Once again, I will quote Perini's arch-opponent Hodges and Whitehouse. Quote, the 5th century, many parts of the classical city were being rebuilt, and all the signs point to an immense mercantile wealth in the late 600 BCE. The best example of the late flowering have been found in the excavations along the Embolos, the monumental street and the center at Ephesus, where crowded dwellings have been uncovered Nearly all of them were lavishly decorated in the 5th and early 6th century, and their country court, courtyards were floored with marble and mosaics. End quote. Again, quote, the sheer grandeur of the 5th and 6th century in Ephesus can be seen in the remains of the great Justinianic Church of St. John uh, in architectural and artistic terms. The chroniclers lead us to believe St. John was close to uh, Sancta Sophia and Saint and San Vitel in Magnus and Magnificence. Its floor was covered with <clears throat> elaborately cut marble, and among the many paintings was one depicting Christ crowning Justinian and Theodora. No less remarkable are the many 
mausoleis, the mausoleis and chapels of the period centered around the grotto of the seven sleepers. I never heard such a thing. These early Christian ferneries, 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 <laughs> remains testified to the wealth of its citizens and death, compelling their lavishly decorated homes by the envelopes. Unquote. Telling Ward Perkin, another severe critic of Perini, goes much further even than Hodges and White House, writing. <clears throat> Writing in 2005, and therefore from the perspective of an extra 30 years of archaeological excavation in the Byzantine region, Ward Perkins remarks that, quote, throughout almost the whole of the Eastern Empire from central Greece to Egypt, the 5th and 6th centuries were a period of remarkable expansion, end quote. We know, he continues, that settlement not only increased in this period, but was also prosperous because it left behind a mass of newly built ruined houses, often in stone, as well as a rash of churches and monasteries across the landscape. New coins were abundant and widely diffused, and new potteries supplying Distant as well as local markets developed on the west coast of modern Turkey and Cyprus and in Egypt. Furthermore, new types of amphora, amphora, amphora appeared in which the wine and oil of the Levant and the Aegean were transported both within the region and outside of it. Even as far as Britain and the upper Danube. Danube. This prosperity represented not just the late flowering of a decaying and doomed society, it represented rather, in many ways, the very epics of Greco-Roman civilization, if we measure golden the go, measure golden ages, he says, in terms of material remains, the fifth and sixth century were certainly golden for most of the eastern Mediterranean and many areas, leaving archaeological traces that are more numerous and more impressive than those of the early Roman Empire. Why would they teach us this? Why don't they just teach us the true history? <clears throat> I'm going to bite them in the bud. They don't tell, tell people the truth about what's really going on. All the stupidness. Before moving on, it is important to note that the wealth and the populousness of, East, of the East at this time is precisely what we would expect from the point of view 
of Rodney Stark and others who see Christianity as the revitalizing force in the Roman world. The Eastern province were, of course, Christianized long before those of the West, and so would, er, would earlier have benefited from the natural increase in population. This, of course, is precisely what the archaeology... Archaeology, archaeology, archaeology shows. Now, of this then sounds like the final days of the civilization that had essentially run its course and was waiting to expire. It is worth pointing out what Ward and Perkins included in North Africa within the sphere of this late golden age of Byzantine. Byzantine uh, culture, or Byzantine culture, thus standing in stark contrast to the elaborately constructed arguments of Hodges and Whitehouse, who sought to portray North Africa as an economic and cultural wasteland by 600 A.D. Nope, they're making it now, though, aren't they? The cities of the time were... sustained by a vast and thriving uh, agriculture. Evidence of this has been found everywhere. Archaeological exploration of the limestone massif of um, the massif in northern Syria, for example, have revealed that during the 6th century, the region attained great prosperity thanks to the cultivation of the olive tree. Studies here have revealed the coexistence of large and small holdings, but also general trend in the years extending from the 4th to the 6th century towards the breakup of of bigger estates and growth of villages composed of relatively well-to-do independent farmers during this time an enormous system of cultivation terracing made great expanses of the Middle East and North Africa fertile and productive. It was the existence of this agricultural infrastructure that permitted the existence of the late classical cities. The end came dramatically. In Ephesus, for example, we are told that, quote, suddenly, in about 614, to judge by the coin evidence, da da dot, the residential complexes were destroyed by fire. There has been much debate about the cataclysmic end of this, these quarters. Was there an earthquake, or were the houses sacked by the Persian armies in 616, or was there a major fire which began by accident, in quotes. Hodges and Whitehouse answer their own question as they continue, dot, dot, dot. The picture in Ephesus changed after the Persian sacked, sack in 1616, or 616. A special number, huh? Like 616, it's another one. Did you like to throw on our faces because we don't know what the hell we're doing? 
The new city was constructed enclosed, enclosing less than a square kilometer, while a citadel was established in, on the hill of um, a. Uh, I gotta turn on press a. Ayasuluk, overlooking Ephesus, the city wall defended a little, a little of the harbor, which was evidently silting up by the sign. End quote. It was the Persian War then, in the reign of Her Heraclius, which began the economic destruction of the Eastern Empire. In the words of Clyde Foss, whom Hodges and Whitehouse quote, quote, the Persian War may da, 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 be seen as the first stage and the process which marked the end of antiquity in Asia Minor. The Arabs continued the work, end of quote. It was thus from the 620 AD or 620s that the great cities of the East, particularly in Asia Minor and Syria, fall into ruin. In these years after the date, to quote Clive Foss again, quote, almost all the cities of Asia Minor suffered a substantial decline. Smyrna alone may have formed an exception. In some instances, the reduction was drastic. Sardis, uh, Pergamon, uh, Miletus, all right. Miletus, uh, uh, Perrine, Perrine, and Magnesia became small fortresses. Colossus disappeared. Colossae, I guess it is. Colossae, Colossae, disappeared to be replaced by a uh, fort high above the ancient city. Da, da, da. The cities reached their lowest point in the 7th and 8th century. Da, da, da. Urban life on which the classical Mediterranean culture had been based was virtually at an end. One of the richest lands of classical civilization was now dominated by villages and fortresses. In the quote. Thus, the words of Clive Faust, Cicero Mango, and one of the most important contemporary authorities on Byzantine civilization is much more forthright. Quote, one can hardly overestimate the, cat the catastrophic break that occurred in the 7th century. Anyone who reads the narrative of events will not fail to be struck by the calamities that befell the empire, starting with the Persian invasion at the very beginning of the century and going on to the Arab expansion some 30 years later. A series of reverses that deprived the empire of some of its most prosperous provinces, namely Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and later North Africa, and so reduced it to less than half its former size, both area and population. But a reading of the narrative sources gives only a faint idea of the profound transformation that accompanied these events. Da, da, da. 
it marked for the Byzantine lands the end of a way of life, urban civilization of antiquity, and the beginning of a very different and distinctly medieval world, end of quote. Like Foss, Mango remarked on the virtual abandonment of Byzantine cities after the mid-7th century, and the archaeology of these settlements usually reveals, quote, a dramatic rupture in the 7th century, sometimes in the form of virtual abandonment, end of quote. When cities and with the papyrus supply from Egypt went the intellectual class, who after the 7th century were reduced to a, quote, small uh, clique, end quote. The evidence of Mango, as Mango sees it, is unmistakable. The, quote, catastrophe, end quote, as he names it, of the 7th century, quote, is the central event of the Byzantine history, end quote. The dramatic rupture of the 7th century is therefore not simply another chapter of the Eastern Empire past, it is the central event of her history. Constantinople herself, the mighty million-strong capital of the East, was reduced to, by the middle of the 8th century to something resembling a ghost town. Mango quotes a document of the period which evokes a picture of, quote, abandonment and ruination. The time, and again, excuse me, time and again, we are told that various monuments, quote, statues, palaces, baths, had once existed but were destroyed. What is more, the remaining monuments, may have, many of which must have dated from the 4th and 5th century, were no longer understood for what they were. They had acquired a magical and generally ominous connotation, end of quote. So great was the destruction that even bronze coinage and everyday lubricant of commercial life disappeared, according to Mango, in sites that have been systematically excavated, such as Athens, Corinth, Sardis, and others, it has been ascertained that bronze coinage, the small change used for everyday transactions, was plentiful throughout the 6th century, and depending on local circumstances, until sometime in the 7th century, after which it almost disappeared when showed a slight increase in the ninth, and did not become abundant again until the latter part of the 10th. Yet even the statement that some coins appeared in the 9th century has to be treated with caution. Mango notes that at Sardis, the period between 491 and 616 is represented by 1,011 bronze coins, the rest of the 7th century by about 90. And the 8th and 9th century combined by no more than nine. And similar results have been obtained from nearly all provincial uh, Byzantine cities. Even such uh, poultry samples 
as have survived from the 8th and 9th century, nine, are you be talking about the coins, only nine coins, usually uh, of questionable provenance, a fact noted by Mango himself, who remarked that often upon closer inspection, these turn out to originate either from before the Dark Age or after it. When substantial archaeology gain again appears in the middle of the 10th century, the civilization is it reveals has been radically altered. The old Byzantinium, uh, the old Byzantium of late antiquity is gone, and we find an impoverished and semi-literate rump, a medieval Byzantium. Byzantium strikingly like the medieval France, Germany, and Italy with which it was contemporary. Here we find to a barter and semi-barter economy a decline in population and literacy and a general reduction in urban life and a break-off point in Byzantium as in the West is the first half of the 7th century. From this, it becomes clear that the classical civilization in East as well as the West did not just wither away and die, it was killed. The signs of violence, destruction, are everywhere from around 615 onward, but who killed it? As might be expected, Hodges and Whitehouse, as well as Mango, attempt to exonerate the Arabs and pin the blame on the Persians, uh, as well as on the inherent decadence on part of the classical civilization itself. They stress it in Ephesus, quote, urban life clearly was waning quite dramatically when the first Arab attack took place in 654 and 655. Fine, but there had been Wars between Persians and Romans before, indeed, war between these two had been almost part of normal life for seven centuries. How is it then that this war led to the end of classical civilization? What was different about this conflict? Wars, no matter how destructive, are normally followed by treaties of peace when these are signed economic activity, and prosperity recovers. It has happened before many times between Romans and Persians. It did not happen this time. Why? It is evident that the Byzantines did not begin rebuilding and ruin Eastern provinces after the ending of the Persian War. And the fact that they did not rebuild can only mean they did not have time to rebuild before the Arabs came to waste the area permanently. Yet this statement implies two further and crucial questions. A, could we be mistaken about the number of years that elapsed between the Persian War, the Persian War and the, and the arrival of the Arabs? And B, what was it about the Arab War, the Arabs War, and arrival, okay, let's try this. B, what 
was it about the Arabs that would have caused them to bring about such lasting destruction? After all, even if the Arabs had arrived in Syria, Egypt, and Asia Minor, at the same time as the Persians, we might expect classical systems of at the same uh, of culture, agriculture and trade to have then reasserted themselves. This, in fact, did not happen. Even Hodges and Whitehouse admit that the Arab conquest of North Africa brought, quote, a dark age, in the quote, to the region lasting two to three centuries. Dark ages have nothing to do with about the Bible. <laughs> I apologize to anybody that if I said that, or I've had people on my show say that, and I think I probably said it myself, being an ignoramus at the time, and being a Mr. Know-it-all. Boy, do I know so little. That's one thing about the Internet that it has been revealing to me, is that how little I know, how easy we are to be, to be manipulated and deceived, and how little anybody else knows around me. The question of a chronology of Islam expansion beyond Arabia shall be revisited near the end of this present volume, whilst natural, while the nature of Islam as a religious and political philosophy will be examined in chapter 13. Unlucky 13. In the meantime, we should note that the Arabs themselves hinted that it was they who had wasted the cities of Anatolia. Speaking of that region, a ninth-century Arab geographer noted, quote, In the day, days of the old cities were numerous, and rum, and rum, rum, Anatolia, but now they have become few. Most of the districts are prosperous and pleasant, and have each an extremely strong fortress, an account of the frequency of the raids which the fighters of the faith, the Muslims, directed upon them. To each village, appertains a, a castle where in time of flight they may take shelter. These raiders, as we shall see, were perpetual features of a lifelong uh, borderlines of the Arab-controlled world, and they had an immense impact upon the entire Mediterranean region, an impact that was felt even into the early years of the 19th century. A map of Europe and Middle East around 600 just before the Arab conquest. And that map has uh, the Roman Empire is still in existence. In contrast to the claims of Perini's critics, the beginning of the 7th century was a period of rapid expansion and new development in many parts of Europe and the Middle East. 
the ban the Byzantine Empire was experiencing an era of unparable prosperity as cities grew larger than under the old Roman Empire. In the same way, the Visigothic Spain Okay, uh, the Visigothic Spain was prosperous and highly developed with every indication of an expanding population. The Visigoth kings had begun to found a new cities. Italy under the Lombards also registered growth after centuries of decline with much building activity under Queen Theo de Linda. Um, the same was true of Frankish Gaul, which united again under um, Clother, Clothar, the Clothar II, enjoyed a period of great prosperity and expansion. In the previously barbarian Celtic lands of Ireland and Scotland, and Caledonia, there flourished a unique Christian civilization, an Anglo-Saxon England stood on the verge of being reincorporated into the, the civilized world of Latin Christianity. Even the barbarian kingdom of Avars, of the Avars, um, centered on the Hungarian plains, showed some con continuity with Roman civilization, and there is much evidence of occupation of the towns along the Danube. The Danube. And parts of Transylvania. Notwithstanding the claims of senior academics, then the evidence of archaeology suggests a dramatic and sudden end of Byzantine civilization, sometimes near the first quarter of the seventh century. There was no gradual decline or period of decadence, and yet, as we have seen over the past 30 years, the great majority of academics working in the area have postulated just that. How else to account for the complete disintegration of urban life and economy in the mid-7th century? The only alternative would be to pin the blame on the Arabs, and this is something they have, for a number of reasons, recoiled from doing, quite apart from a now almost default, default habit of seeing the Arabs as a cultured and civilized force and therefore incapable of reducing the entire civilization to dust. There is a problem of how to account for the speed and ease with which the Arab army swept over the provinces of the east and the very speed of the Arabs' conquests had now become in itself a major proof of inherent weaknesses and decadence of the Byzantine civilization. Indeed, the notion that is that it was a terminal decline in late classical civilization that called forth 
the Arab conquest is received wisdom among many academics and has generated a whole genre of writing. Yet this idea, now so prevalent, ignores the glaring fact the parts of, of the Roman and Byzantine world conquered by Arabs were not the barbarous and uncivilized ones. It was without exception the civilized and prosperous provinces that fell to them. All the regions overran, overrun by Saracens, uh, by the Saracens, the Anatolia, Syria, and Egypt, North Africa, and Spain were invariably the most urbanized and prosperous and centralized parts of the late classical world. It was only indeed when they reached the more barbarous and less Romanized parts of Europe such as northern Spain and Gaul, that they began to encounter effective resistance. This is a topic of which we shall return in due course, for it is of central importance to the whole debate. <clears throat> a great transformation of the 7th century. Well, I will end this recording and try to bust another one out. Got nothing else better to do. Why don't get this book done? This is a very important uh, topic. At least it is to me. It should be to you, too. It should be to anybody who is uh, interested in what's what is uh, part of the elite's conspiracy against us. And as we go on with this, and as I get that other book uh, from Emmett Scott, I don't know when I'll be able to get that. Um, but I recommend you getting that. And that is a guide to the Phantom Dark Ages. You're going to find out that they tacked on 300 years to a calendar for a very good for, for a reason. And it does revolve around the Arabs. Or Muslims, Islam, and uh, it seems to be the Byzantinian, the eastern leg of the Roman Empire, Byzantine, and the western leg of Roman Empire, have been having a problem with their Arab cousins. Who knows? Maybe it is the maybe it is the Jews that are behind it all. The Talmudic Jews. Don't know. <clears throat> I mean, I, I'm not in the know, <clears throat> but we are going to learn something that most people do not know. If you listen to this show, you're going to learn, learn something truly that most people do not know that you don't live in the year 2016. And what a bizarre thing to learn.